Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast, a show where two progressive theologians working in the South gather and discuss matters of faith, politics, and other social issues. I'm Mark Boswell, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Jamie McLeod. Now, listeners, we weren't with you last week because Holy Week is one of the busiest times of the year for pastors and their staff, even in a normal year, right next to Advent and Christmas. And Jamie, I know you were a very busy pastor last week. How then goes your post-Holy Week recovery? I will let you know when it starts. <laughs> well, I hope you get there soon. I know COVID is COVID and yeah, things are just wonky. I imagine that's still the case for you. Um, so I hope you get some rest soon. Well, I appreciate it. Today, dear listeners, we are not pushing Holy Week back into a corner to be forgotten about until next year. Rather, we're discussing today a bit of what it means to think about COVID-19 first in terms of Holy Week and second in terms of race and the racial disparities that are surfacing in parts of the country as relates to the virus. We're also excited to share yet another new song by Leanne Chambliss Armstrong of Alabama, along with an interview with a friend of PST, the Reverend Alan Maxfield Steele, one of two co-executive directors of the Highlander Research and Education Center located in the Appalachian Mountains of East Tennessee. The Highlander Center has a long history of engaging and equipping grassroots movements for social justice throughout the South. Yes, they do exist. And in the interview, you'll hear more about the excellent work that the center does and has been doing for a great many decades. And lastly, of course, we'll wind down our show with a segment we call our Front Porch Musings, and you can listen to them after our interview with Reverend Maxfield Steele. Before we begin today, please remember that if you enjoy this podcast, to give it a five-star ranking wherever you're listening. Doing so helps others to find our work, and we certainly do appreciate that. Please also remember that the PST podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, along with Google, Spotify, and Anchor FM. And if you want to follow more of our written work, please visit our website, ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com, and also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. And one last note before we open the show. I want to shout out some newer essays that you can find on the PST website by the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Lemaster-Smith, myself, Mark Boswell, and the Reverend Jess Cook with More Light Presbyterians, whom we interviewed in last week's podcast. Please go enjoy those COVID and Holy Week-related essays. Thank you all again for the support and your warm responses. We hope you're doing well, and please enjoy the show. Jamie, last week in the midst of the COVID pandemic, President Trump got on Twitter and wished everyone, quote, a happy Good Friday to all, end quote, to which someone cleverly responded in a merry crucifixion to you. While all the fruit with President Trump seems to be low-hanging, I bring this up only because it showcases the exact opposite spirit of what Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday can mean for many Christian folks. In other words, the betrayal and execution of Jesus of Nazareth are not generally thought of as happy things to celebrate. Easter is, but not Good Friday. Jamie, you're a pastor and a theologian. Where was your heart and your thoughts during last week as the Christian community reflected on the betrayal, the suffering, the death of Jesus in light of the pandemic and the pain and suffering being visited on so many people during this time? I've been preaching for the last four or five Sundays as as COVID-19 is sort of uh, overtaken really everything else, but especially once the vast majority of the nation went into some sort of stay at home uh, order. I've been preaching 
how much that made the Lenten experience so much more real for Christians, especially for, for Reformed Christians, who I think often struggle to get into the, the Lenten headspace, right? So Catholicism tends to be a very heavy laden, heavy laden faith with, with a lot of myth and symbolism around darkness and, and sort of the suffering aspect of the faith. And often reformed Christians push that to the, to the side and almost want to jump from Good Friday to Easter Sunday in one fell swoop. And so this, this Lenten season, especially the last four or five weeks, we, we have all had to slow down. We've all had to consider the growing number of both infections and the number of deaths. And mm-hmm. for a lot of us, there have been some deaths that were exceedingly close, even if we didn't know the f- people personally. I mean, folks have died who were incredibly talented in different areas of, of culture and society. And I think a number of us grieve some of those deaths as much as one can, can grieve uh, the death of someone they don't really know. But, but more than that, folks know people who have died now. Yeah. It rarely does a day go by in which somebody that I know doesn't say this person in my, in my universe or my, 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 my circle of friends either is in the hospital or has passed away. And so, whereas Reformed Christians especially typically push thoughts of darkness and death and suffering off to the side. It has been palpable and in your face, really the vast majority of, of what was Lent and through Holy Week and really up until now, right? We, we celebrated Easter, and I think that's good. I think it's good to, to even though we are all still stuck at home, to, to take an hour, to take an hour and a half, because I preached a little bit longer, <laughs> that Sunday uh, to t- to take uh, to take time to celebrate that even when it doesn't necessarily feel real in the moment, and yet as soon as that celebration's done, you're still at home. And I went back home, and mm-hmm. and that's just that's our reality. And I imagine, barring some poor judgment from from state leaders, I imagine that's going to be our reality probably for another month. Would be, would be my guess. Right. Um, and then even then, yeah, even then you're talking about going back out into a whole new world. My wife and I were talking yesterday um, because they were talking about, I guess it was, was I think it was California that, that released all these, uh, this list of sort of new restrictions for how, how to do things when they begin to reopen, reopen their economy. And they talked about uh, going out to eat and having waiters wearing masks and gloves and carrying around paper uh, one-time use menus and using like plastic forks and spoons. And it just, <laughs> we looked at each other and said, yeah. why in the world would anybody go and do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's something that is real and tangible about what we talk about in the Lenten season that has very much come to to life and to fruition as we have been going through our spiritual practices. And I I have felt that uh, in a real and profound way, especially the last couple of weeks as the death totals just continued to grow. So that's, that, that, that's how I'm, at least 
that's how I'm starting to ponder it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I, I think for, I'm going to make a sweeping generalization here, but for many Christian folks in the United States, walking this road with Christ toward Jerusalem, towards the crucifixion that would await him on the other side of various things that he did once he gets to Jerusalem, that is a time that's meant to be in the Lenten season where we walk this with this a, a sense of penitence and, and almost this awareness of, of a real threat, of a real danger, of uh, real consequences that are happening on the other side of this for, for Jesus. And the church in the United States, especially for most white Christian communities, there is a, there is certainly a sense of privilege where it's hard for us to put ourselves in a space where we can truly appreciate what some of that may have felt like. And I won't speak for other communities, but church is generally a, a safe and socially acceptable community to be a part of. And, and the Lenten season, I mean, this isn't to belittle any, you know, well-intentioned practices, but if, if we're, you know, we give up chocolate or we take up reading a new book or a discipline or something during the Lenten season, but it, it doesn't have that same, sense of, of, of being fraught with something much heavier like the Lenten season has this time around. And so I do, that's an angle through which I have approached it this time. And that is, uh, it's just given me a new lens to think about it, especially as we get into Holy Week. I found myself thinking about a lot of, uh, we've talked about this in previous weeks, first responders, healthcare professionals, also your lower wage essential employees at grocery stores and driving trucks and at restaurants and things like that. And how there's a call in a lot of um, liberation theologians or liberation theology, there's this call to attend obviously to the suffering and to the poor. Uh, but there's a line in um, some Latin American liberation theologians that they use and it's called, it, it references taking the crucified down off the cross, the crucified people, those who are suffering, those who are, um, or who are catching hell uh, due to societal arrangements and about taking them down off of the cross. And I just couldn't help but think this week and on Good Friday about the numerous people who are out, again, risking uh, their life and uh, putting themselves in harm's way in order to help those, help those down who are either in the process of dying or those who are fighting for their life or trying to get well and fight the infection and the disease. And I think that there's some rich, not just symbolism, there is rich symbolism there, but there's also real theological things going on there that uh, I hope that others are able to, to think about that and to see crucifixion with Good Friday is not something that has happened to one person. That, that's my takeaway from, from that idea in Latin American liberation theology is that this isn't just crucifixion isn't just something that happened to one person 2000 years ago, but it's something that continues to happen. And, and as followers of Christ, we are called to tend to those places in our world where that suffering and, and pain is being visited on people. And so I think about those who are on the front lines who are doing that work and I'm grateful for their work, but my mind kept going in that direction, particularly. No, I think that's right. And I think we'll get to it here in a second, but one of the things that, that to me, the last few weeks has, has really just stripped bare is just the profound inequalities that don't just exist, but undergird the very way that we do society. 
within the United States. You know, we, we've talked about it in weeks in weeks past with uh, with those workers that are deemed essential that also make seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour, right? The right. folks who who really are putting themselves on the front line in order to make sure that we have access to groceries and and have our trash picked up and and do the things that make our daily schedules run and really get no sort of certainly no financial benefit from it and also i think often put themselves out there even when we're not in the midst of a of a disease late in time but also just put themselves out there on a weekly basis and live on the margins in a way that most of us don't and so i'm aware of that i've been aware of that the last few weeks the one thing that that I want to take up, I think, is, and you picked up a little bit of this on your in your essay on PST last week. I perceive within the larger society, and this happened during 9/11 too, so I don't know that I'm that far off. But I perceive a a movement back towards religion and and faith and spirituality and whatever form that takes for you within the general public. And I think that it, it arises when folks look for answers, right? And mm-hmm. it, it, we, we, when you're living in a time in which questions have no answers, people tend to look beyond kind of themselves and their own rationality and their own intellect. But that being said, one of the things that the church is going to have to do coming out of this is to come up with some sort of a reason for why this this type of pandemic happens, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I'm not saying sort of a, a step-by-step guide to how evil and God exist at the same time, or, or I'm sorry, I don't want to say evil, but 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 how disease and goodness and God and creation can all exist coexist at the same time. I don't want to sort of I don't want to rationalize it. But at the same time, one of the biggest struggles that the church has had, for me at least in my adult life, is an inability to talk about when really bad stuff happens in a way that makes any kind of sense, or is it all comforting? Now, I say that as somebody who is who, who remains a believer. So, I, it, but for a long time, it it pushed me to the point where I wasn't, if only because nobody could talk to me in a way that made sense about children in, in, in Nazi internment camps being crucified, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 story, the, the, the story that sticks with me is the one from Elie Wiesel when he talks about the child who stole an extra crust of bread because he was hungry and ended up getting strung up by the Nazis, right? Yeah. That, and, he, and, and Wiesel talked about God being crucified up there, up there with right. him. It, right, so for, for me, that, those sorts of questions of of how do we talk about, you know, in our, in my church, in my call to worship, almost every week, we end up with God is good all the time and all the time God is good. What does that goodness mm. mean, right? What mm. does that look like? From where can you derive comfort in coming to worship and saying those words and worshiping God in whatever form that takes for you? Like, what, what does that look like? And if we don't come up with a, a more coherent way of talking about that that doesn't make us sound like we're writing hallmark cards <laughs> whatever sorts of ground that we have gained in in bringing folks back into the church will fall away almost immediately i'm i'm convinced 
so that's that's been on my mind a lot is just thinking about what does it mean to to believe in god and COVID 19 at the same time right right and so i i just i i, I keep coming back to that over the last couple of weeks because i really i do see i do see a a, a a reclaimed spirit within the United States. It's not everybody and it's not all the time, but, but I do see folks sort of more openly talking about praying, more openly talking about their faith, more openly talking about uh, turning to God in times of, uh, of trouble and distress. And I think that it does provide a way for the church to reground itself within the cultural milieu, but only if we don't sound ridiculous when we talk about it coming out of it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that, that's where I find myself today. I sound ridiculous all the time. So I, 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 <laughs> I, I'm, I'm used to it, but I do think that, that, that when we come back, whatever that new normal looks like, my wife hates that term. Let's see. Whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever it looks like when we come out of this. Um, yeah we we've got to be able to to speak about that experience in a way that honors people's angst and and fear and 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 sadness and grief and doesn't merely try to placate them so that's that's the other piece that i've been thinking a lot about in the light of of holy week and and what does it mean to resurrect like is it something that happened 2000 years ago and that was that or is it something that happens every moment and one of those is a whole lot more valuable to me than the other. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. And I think I mentioned this in my essay. I, I think I left this in. I don't remember, but I, I make it, I think I made an allusion towards how do we not rush past Holy Saturday or that time of, of, of God's silence, what seems like a silence in the land as Christ lays crucified and, and dead and in the grave. What does it mean to a not just rush to Easter Sunday, but also what does it mean to stay with Holy Saturday throughout the rest of the year? <laughs> not, yeah, not not just if for me liturgically speaking, not just to sit in it for one day, or not just to think about the crucified peoples on Good Friday and, and on Holy Saturday, but to really, for I feel drawn back to that position constantly and and learning to hold that intention with the good news of Easter Sunday with resurrection continually breaking in, as I heard you say just a moment ago, holding those two things together, that good news with that reality is, is for me, it's very important. And it's what would make the church relevant to not in a cheesy way, but in a, in a real, you know, sense of, with a real sense of depth that, that has to be held together for me. I'm reminded of a phrase we learned back in seminary called the God of the gaps, which was the theory that modern people, you know, turn to God for, to explain things that sort of get beyond what the scientific community can explain or our rational minds can approach to make sense of. And this is certainly one of those times. And so we see not surprisingly at all people turning to, to God, and that's not a put down, but it just, I think that's where we are um, in the modern Western world. Uh, and this has evoked some of that again for us. And how does the church tend to those questions that are emerging? And also, I don't mean this in like a church growth kind of gross way, but how do we then, how does the church maybe continue to function as? A worshiping community, but also a community that can uh, is 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 nimble enough to speak to the inevitable 
future things that will continue to be present in people's lives as we uh, make sense of the world that we live in. I'm reminded on that front too, that this whole thing with COVID-19 seems to be in a bit of a different ballpark altogether for mainline Christians and even for mainline Christians in particular, as I think about progressive friends and colleagues of mine, and I throw myself in this, I think that it's the, the closest thing that we've had to really make ourselves think in these ways is the idea of climate change and some of the climate disasters that are already beginning to take place due to climate change. But by that, I mean specifically non, non and I'll clarify the statement in a minute, non-human inflicted pain and suffering and injustice. And I know very well that human beings are responsible for and playing a role in climate change just as well as we are with COVID-19. But this is different than, you know, this is sort of a, a disease is not the same as Dylan Roof perhaps going into the church in Charleston and doing the unspeakable things that he did. And so it's, and I think that this is going to hopefully sharpen our theological language around how to speak about this type of, of suffering and injustice, which we'll talk about in our second segment that's happening at the, at the, I want to say the hands, the metaphorical hands of something a bit more faceless than human evil that we're visiting upon one another. That that's a different theological i mean it's a theological landscape we really only get into maybe when there's a hurricane or a tornado or something that comes and goes and we get back to normalcy pretty quickly but we're not getting back to normalcy pretty quickly here and it's something that's still out there and we're really wrestling with and i hope that that i i I think especially about climate change with i I just don't think those things are going to get any better um, in the next several decades for us. And uh, maybe that this provides a place for us to begin to think through um, what that means to wrestle with God and goodness and the created order when we start thinking about all of the things that get lumped into to those ideas. So, Well, no, I think that's right, right? So when you use the example of like a hurricane or uh, or some kind of a natural disaster, right? Almost always that happens to a people at a place at a time somewhere else, right? Statistically, mm-hmm. that happens for most of the folks somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to sort of lament over that for, for a time and feel sort of those waves of, of sadness or discontent or, or, or disillusionment when, you, when you're looking at something that happens, you know, Hurricane Katrina was was something that made the entire nation stop, right? And, and watch sort of what was happening in the immediate, and then watch the government response to it, and 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 sort of track what that looked like over a large span of time. But even it had a, a terminal point, right? The, mm-hmm. At some point, the news stopped covering that and started talking about something else, and we moved on into the next chapter of our lives. This is not like that, mm-hmm. right? This like climate change. This is something that is affecting the entirety of the global population, right? Mm-hmm. And we've been tracking it through, through East Asia, and we've been tracking it across Western Europe, and we've been tracking it in North America. Wait till it hits Latin America. Wait till it hits Africa. Right. It's going to cut through those continents like a brush fire. And we really are going to be all united in this, this experience of, uh, of death and and destruction and the the cosmos is not going to feel like a de facto friendly happy place <laughs> right um, right 
And if there's a way that we can talk about the natural order and talk about finding God in the midst of in the midst of disease and pandemic and and epidemics and then we can transition that talk to talk about we can transition that language to talk about climate change mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. we as a people or even even if you don't believe we as a people are creating a change within the climate that is an observable reality that it is in fact changing. And so even if you're one of those folks who, who sits not where most of the scientists or the vast majority of scientists are, at least you can acknowledge that there is something that is happening and that the world barring something unforeseen is not going to be a safe place for humanity for the next 200, 300, 400 years. And this gives us that space to begin to have that conversation through the lens of something that we are all experiencing right now that is tangible and real. And I think it does give, like I said, especially mainline theologians who so often struggle to talk about the harder stuff in life, a a space to explore what sort of language they might want to use. What, what sort of language best captures the feelings of folks right now and then expand that into sort of a larger conversation about the climate, about creation, about the cosmos. Right. I, I think the space is there for it to happen. And it certainly needs to. That's right. So, Jamie, before we end our first segment, I, I, this is related, of course, we've been gifted with another treasure by a good friend of PST, Leanne Chambliss-Armstrong. Uh, who's been writing and, and recording these wonderful folk songs reflecting on society and the ethics of the pandemic. Um, some songs lighthearted, some more serious. We were able to share one of those songs last week at the end of our show, but I thought that this week it would fit very well with the segment we're wrapping up. As we reflected on Good Friday and Holy Saturday with the rest of Holy Week, again, those days reminding us to pay attention to the times when everything does not work out the way we sometimes hope or when the cosmos do not feel to be a safe and inviting place, uh, the times when we feel God's absence. We know that Holy Week shows us that it's okay for us not to have it all together when a happy ending doesn't seem to be in sight. Again, I think of Jesus crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that same spirit, Leanne has shared with us a song titled, It's Okay Not to Be Okay. And if you listen closely to her lyrics, I think you'll find some rich resonances with our conversation. Leanne, if you're listening, thank you again for your work and, and being who you are and for sharing with us. We'll cue up that song for you and we'll be back with you with our second segment afterwards. It's okay not to be okay. It's all their 
Jamie, it's time we move into our second segment for today. As usual in the United States, there's a great big legacy of consequences related to systems of racial injustice, which continue to adversely affect people of color. Times of crises tend to expose gaps in access to resources, wealth, and other items, and the pandemic with COVID-19 is no different. In a recent article from the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Clyde Yancey, an African-American medical doctor, shared that in Chicago, more than 50% of COVID-19 cases and nearly 70% of COVID-19 deaths involve Black individuals, although African-Americans make up only 30% of the population. So let me say that again. African-Americans make up 30% of the population of Chicago, yet they account for 70% of COVID-19 deaths in Chicago. Moreover, these deaths, the article states, are concentrated mostly in just five neighborhoods on the city's south side. In Louisiana, likewise, 70.5% of deaths in Louisiana have occurred among African-Americans who represent only 32.2% of the state's population. So again, in Louisiana, similarly, there's about 70% of, of the deaths that have happened here happen in the black community. In Michigan, 33% of the COVID-19 cases, just infections and 40% of deaths in Michigan have occurred among black individuals who represent 14% of the population. He goes on to share that this reflects not only access to health care, but also how certain health outcomes are more prevalent in the black community, which I would say are due to legacies of racism and injustice, of course, things like heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, but also race often determines where people live or have access to living, along with the fact that this is that there is a disparity in terms of the number of people in the in the black community who are in lower socioeconomic brackets. And for most people in lower socioeconomic brackets, working from home and social distancing is less likely to be an option, as we discussed in our show a few weeks ago. Jamie, we know that a disease is no respecter of persons, for sure. But these statistics are startling and also not surprising, given our country's relative disinclination to ever really talk about past and ongoing racial legacies seriously. As we think about COVID and these statistics about the outcomes in communities of color, in the black community in particular, what are your, what are some of your thoughts on, on, on these big, big matters? It's sad, but not surprising, right? So, yeah. so when you talk about Chicago, when you talk about Michigan, when you talk about New Orleans, you do have poverty and race commingled with one another in, in a deep and profound way, mm-hmm. right? So, just like last week when we were talking about essential workers, when folks are poor, they don't have a lot of the choices to that 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 most of us experience and often take for granted. To if you don't like a job, you go get another job, right? Mm-hmm. Moreover, in there are poor health health outcomes across the board with. I mean, you said this with with the African-American community, both because of poverty, but also because of sort of that systemic racial nature to the way the country has grounded itself and continues to, to function. And you need no other proof than to say a disease has no racial boundaries. And yet here we see these poor outcomes 
-hmm. and, and there's no other way to think about it or to explain it. And again, I just, I hope that as we sort of traverse this place that we're in and then we're ready to begin to move out of it and back into something that resembles normalcy, that when we are rebuilding these systems that have all been torn down over the past few weeks, that we put real thought into what kind of system do we want, mm -hmm. right? Part of the issue with, 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 with capitalism is that it, it's, uh, it determines for you what kind of system you're going to have, right? It, it, it creates a survival of the fittest competition for resources, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so if you lose once and win once, you're probably going to break even. If you lose 30 times in a row in survival of the fittest, then you're living in poverty. And, mm -hmm. and the rest of the sorts of outcomes that we, again, take for granted often do not come to you. And so if there's a way for us to rebuild an economy that takes seriously racial disparities, that takes seriously economic disparities, that takes seriously the experience of folks living on the margins, then we really do have a chance to create a better cultural and societal experience for more people. And that kind of opportunity just doesn't come along very often. And so even in the midst of, of illness and pandemic and death, and there's a chance for, again, to use holy weak language, for resurrection to, to arise out of death. And, and that's often the best that we can do right? is to go from one moment to the next mm -hmm. and to move from darkness and into light and to move from death and into life and, and to see those opportunities spring up around us. And like mm -hmm. I said, that opportunity doesn't come often in a society, right? Societies become their own sort of self-perpetuating reality. And it takes something like this to, 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 to break that up and to challenge those foundations. And let's go back now and rebuild the foundations better, stronger, with more equality in mind that, that we don't have those folks who live on the margins and, and make seven twenty-five dollars an hour and $14,000 a year and, and are expected to live a good and decent and dignified life. Yeah, I think I'm torn. I, on the one hand, I think about at the national level in terms of our governmental systems, what is what this virus will do to change outcomes from and, and the way conversations are handled at that level and in the upper echelons of political power and the voting booth even come November and what that how our elections will turn out, not even letting my mind go there yet in terms of what, what it would mean if this is, if there's a second wave of this, if our recovery is still in process when the elections roll around. But I don't want to, I don't want to think about, you know, racial disparities only at the national or federal levels, but also in, in, in larger levels, but also more local levels too. And what types of organizing and local participation and sort of civic mindedness and abilities that are being cultivated and mobilized on on the ground at more grassroots level to do the kind of work that you're talking about and to rebuild or to adjust or to tinker with these systems in ways that we can push them to be to be more equitable 
and mindful of past legacies of injustice that continue to to permeate through communities before, during, and after the pandemic. And I think that while it is going to be crucial what happens in terms of organizing for the election in November, but it's also going to be crucial what kind of organizing continues to happen during the pandemic at local grassroots levels, uh, not just to determine the presidential election, but in terms of empowering local communities and individuals to fight against these systems that are negatively affecting their lives. I think about that in terms of the Delta, which is an 80% African-American region and, and the, and just, organizing efforts that I've seen and I've had the privilege to be a part of that I've, that I've witnessed unfolding across our state in Louisiana. And I'm reminded again of the power that people have to hold systems accountable and to do that kind of work. And I've been glad to see that that work has continued in Louisiana, particularly around the outbreak in New Orleans and elsewhere in the state. And that, that, that kind of work, churches can certainly be a part of that. They have been here um, in the Delta in terms of organizing and, and making uh, making space to envision a world where things aren't the same as they've always been. And so I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. It's, I will say, and anyone who's been involved in organizing knows this, it's hard work, but it's work that can be done and it's work that's valuable. And it's work that more people want to be involved in than one might expect. And it's work that, again, just it, it's worth it. And I don't, I don't know of any other way that it's going to happen. And I'm, and I'm saying this to myself more than to anyone else, that if it's going to happen, it's happening at this level. I'm going to get behind. We haven't talked on our show in a few weeks, and the news is just you know, broken in the last few weeks that the presumptive candidate, as we suspected, is Joe Biden. And I'm going to, I'm going to back him and, and his campaign and do what I can because of my feelings about the current occupant but I'm reminded all over again uh, of the work that has to happen locally uh, with local communities um, to there's a, there's a large degree to which um, change happens at that level too. And that that can't be neglected. And I, th I think about the, the black communities that I've been a part of in various capacities and, and connections that we have there and know that that work is being done and that is uh, work that needs to continue to be supported. And in light of that, Jamie, I'm going to, to transition us now um, to our third segment, um, just because that idea of, of movement building and organizing with people of faith and with people who are not attached to a faith community and, and movements that happen there, that happens to tie into our, uh, our third segment for today, which is an interview with the Reverend Alan Maxfield Steele who was a co-executive director at the Highlander Research and Education Center in East Tennessee. Uh, you will hear in the interview just what the role of the Highlander Center has been in cultivating and equipping and working alongside of already existing social movements throughout the South that are doing this kind of revisioning um, of what society can be and what communities can be. Um, Alan sat down with us recently to tell us a little more about the work of the center and its future direction and, and how its rich past has shaped its current work. So I hope that um, everyone will stick around for that interview. Um, if you'd like to learn more about what they do at the Highlander Research Center, please visit their website. It's Highlander, like Highland, highlandercenter.org. 
please visit uh, please visit there and and enjoy this interview that we have with Reverend Maxfield Steele. Welcome, everyone, to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast, where today we are fortunate to be joined by the Reverend Alan Maxfield Steele, who is a co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center near Newmarket, Tennessee, which is in the eastern portion of the state in the Appalachian region. Reverend Alan, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. How are things going for you? And let me add on to that. How are things for you and your community in regard to the coronavirus outbreak? Thanks, Mark. It's good to be with you and y'all. Things are going pretty well. We're living in Western North Carolina and uh, working in Eastern Tennessee through Highlander and folks are doing all right. We're encouraging people to be safe, uh, practice physical distancing, but social connection and uh, already keeping the work moving by moving a lot of things online. And uh, we benefited from some good rural broadband infrastructure that we put in place for ourselves a few years back. So we're able to do some stuff uh, organizationally and even beyond uh, in a way that's been helpful in this moment, even though we couldn't have anticipated something this of this large scale uh, at this point. So, yeah. That is wonderful. It's wonderful that you have the broadband structure in place too. That's you do, you do now. Yeah, I, I appreciate that more than I ever have. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, glad that that's there for you all. That's good um, that y'all work for that. Um, now, Alan, I reached out to you today because I feel like the legacy of the Highlander Center and its current work uh, are things that progressive people in the South should know about if they don't already. And if they do, I'm sure it's something that we could all benefit by learning about even more. As you and I were connected recently by a mutual colleague, about the work of progressive Southern theologians. I thought it'd be nice to use our platform to share more of what you all are working on through the Highlander Center. So to kick us off today, let me ask a great big question for you to put in your own words. Uh, what are the mission and aims of the Highlander Research and Education Center? What should people know? Yeah, so since 1932, Highlander's been a school, a school that functions a little differently than most schools as we understand it. If we've most of us have experienced formal U.S.-based education um, that, you know, it's very attractional in the sense that people have to come to it, spend all day at it, do it year-round, et cetera. Um, Highlander functions more like a low-residency school for social movements and grassroots leaders. And we've been doing that in different forms with the mission of education uh, and the purpose of education for social change being front and center the whole time. Today, we articulate our mission as being a catalyst for grassroots organizing and social movements, uh, particularly in the South, which includes where we're located in Central Appalachia and Eastern Tennessee, but also nationally and internationally. We've been around for 88 years, so the expanse and scope of our work and connections uh, is something that's also central to our work, which is to thread uh, people together and weave movements together and, and, and then support grassroots leaders as they become more conscious of the bigger movements that are part of the world uh, or become more conscious of the capacity that they themselves have to initiate those movements collectively with other folks. So um, like I said, we're a school, we're a low residency school in, in, in some of the, you know, that's one term to understand it a little bit better. Um, we're in our third home, which is uh, an important part of our story. Uh, we've been in New Market since 1971. Prior to that, we were uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee for a decade, where a lot of the work that we did to support uh, the the work of the Black Freedom Movement at that time 
Uh, a lot of that was based out of. And then prior to that, we were in our original home uh, in Grundy County, Tennessee, between Chattanooga and Nashville. Uh, that it was a place where we operated for almost 30 years before the state of Tennessee and local authorities and, and the federal government included um, forcefully evicted us from the land for bringing black and white people together uh, during that during that season. So um, our mission is very much grounded in place, but it's also very much grounded in the reality of how we got to move. Wonderful. I have to admit, um, I was reading again through the history of the Highlander Center the other day, and it's very impressive to say the least. Uh, and it's also easy for a progressive person to totally geek out on what the center has been involved with for the past almost a century. And you've alluded to that already. Um, it's a truly amazing story. And if people go and look, um, they will see connections to Reinhold Niebuhr, Martin Luther King Jr., Pete Seeger. There's a wonderful photograph everyone should go and see. Um, Rosa Parks, Ralph Abernathy, and many others. Mm -hmm. And while I encourage everyone to go to the Highlander Center, highlandercenter.org, and read through that history as it's presented, um, could you walk us through the story as you would tell it and, 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 and how that impacts what you're doing today and how what you're doing today, um, where that's going. I don't want to just focus on history, but how all that plays together. Totally. So today, a lot of our work is grounded in three kind of categories. Um, and again, everything that we're doing in those categories is, is about helping people learn together to, to, to take on social change efforts, right? So uh, but we we break it down in three different ways, like transformative justice work. So what does it really mean to engage uh, from a, not just reform that we would concede to, but transformation that our people deserve and that people deserve uh, and transforming from what we've inherited, you know, as folks um, to, to what an actual liberated society and social structures and political structures um, would look like. Now, I think from a religious or at least a Christian perspective, people might call that the kingdom of God, right? So as I'm speaking in this context to folks who think about that, we're, we're very much in the work of what does it mean to build the, the kingdom, <laughs> as some I think would, would prefer, and I, I prefer that as well, that language as well, the kingdom of God and the reign of God, what does it mean to really step into that? So transformative justice work and educating people and working with people uh, through educational methodologies that are grounded in their own lived experience, but also their own, uh, as Robin Kelly, the historian, uh, refers to their own freedom dreams. You know, what does that really mean to help people put together the tools to do that? So that's one slice of work. So we have curriculum design work that we do. We particularly focus on um, helping people work through the rearrangements of the social and political and economic structures uh, that they've inherited. So the rearrangements meaning we're not gonna have a fully realized, liberated uh, community, household, country, society, globe, you know, world, um, unless we really understand the economic and governance systems that are, that are central to, to what creates the things that are death dealing and what could create the things that are life giving. So we have curriculum that we design. We have one that's called Mapping Our Futures and it's a way of helping people understand um, the system as it is, the, it's that way of helping people do the research around the systems of what exists. And then it also gives tools and examples of other places and other efforts around the world, nationally and in the region uh, that people can learn from and say, oh, you know, they're doing this particular thing that creates some alternative governance and economic structures uh, at the local level. We wanna learn that too. So it's a way of helping people design their own learning journeys um, and learning experiences to, to create social change. 
I'd say that um, the second big slice that we talk about in our work is movement accompaniment and movement support. Mm -hmm. So we talk about accompaniment very in a similar way to, to uh, our friends uh, in Central America and South America and liberation theologians have talked about for a long time. Like what does it really mean to accompany people um, through uh, the experiences of transformation? Um, so that can range from things like technical assistance. So uh, our educational staff has a lot of time that they devote to just supporting the grassroots leaders that are part of their programs or part of their cohorts or part of their fellowships or whatever, and just identifying the basic technical um, and technocratic things that they need to, to, to do an effort to commit to a grassroots organizing campaign. So it's about getting people the information to do that, connecting them to people. Uh, but it's also about the real, um, the real support that we are, uh, we, we devote to people um, in moments of crisis. Uh, so ranging from hurricane relief, you know, we're a 186 acre farm with, with 50 beds. Um, a full full kitchen and a staff that can provide meals uh, and hospitality for folks. Um, and so in the events of like hurricanes or uh, any other kind of disasters of that scope, uh, we've opened up the doors to people. We encourage our program participants to come up and we, we absorb those costs. So that that's another form of movement accompaniment um, and movement support. Um, and I would say the other, the other piece is that people are really hungry to understand how to apply the methodologies, the educational methodologies that we've kind of landed on in the last 88 years. So popular education, intergenerational organizing, cultural organizing, uh, land and place-based educational work, uh, participatory action research, and language justice work. Those are like some of the core methodologies. And so people want trainings and how do you do popular education? How do you do participatory action research? And that's another way that we accompany folks through uh, one-time workshops or weekend-long workshops or a series of accompanying workshops where we help people refine those skills uh, and learn how to expand those skills into their own efforts. And then the third piece of work that we really emphasize is uh, what we call, <laughs> we joke about it because it's a lot of I words like incubation, innovation, instigation. Uh, intervention you know we call it the, the quadrant of multiple eyes <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a place where we we in, innovate incubate radical work um, so radical meaning let's get down to the root of the problem um, let's really let's let's invest time and resources into our staff or community members or um, nascent organizations like up-and-coming organizations people who are trying to figure stuff out um, and invest in and invest in them. So we support the time with time and resources, people's and different communities' efforts to figure something out. So when I talked earlier um, about internet infrastructure, uh, that was very much an experiment over the last several years. That was both meeting a need, you know, in rural communities, as you're very aware of, I'm sure. Um, rural broadband infrastructure is something that the state has not fully invested in. And by state, I mean state by state and also just sort of generally the state and its parties. But um, so what does it mean to actually help people establish what has become more rapidly in this moment to really good example of it, a public utility need um, if we, and if we, and if they're not going to do it, how do we do it in such a way? And by we, I mean movements and movement organizations and grassroots communities do it. Uh, in a way that's sustaining and also uh, helps us meet our basic needs like healthcare stuff, homework, uh, <laughs> all the basic you know relationships that we need to sustain. So not only do we incubate those kinds of projects on our own land, but we also incubate organizations 
that are interested in fiscally being fiscally sponsored by us. So we leverage our administrative um, work and administrative staff towards supporting some of the bread and butter needs of new organizations or organizations that want to take on some of those overhead costs. And that's how we incubate and grow. And we're we're working exclusively with organizations that are typically black led, black women led, black queer women led, uh, or and or in areas that are under resources like youth. Uh, youth organizations throughout um, Central Appalachia um, and that kind of thing. So those three categories, if you're if you're if you're if you're paying attention to social movements in the region, or social movements nationally, um, those three categories are interfacing with people in all of those different movements in the 21st century. So the movement for Black Lives, we're a high capacity member. Um, my co-director Ashley Woodard Henderson. Uh, is a major player in that work and sits in multiple tables and informs moving for Black Lives Policy Table, but also contemporary organizing, the Electoral Justice Project, the whole range of things like that. Um, anything that's anything that's functioning in the Southeast um, around social solidarity economics work. So, like, what does it mean to build a different kind of regional economy? Um, we have staff who are devoted to uh, like hosting those kinds of spaces and moving that kind of educational work into the into the into communities. Um, we've done, we do a lot of, and at this point we're doing a lot of accompaniment work with, uh, the Southeast Immigrant Rights Network, um, which as a network grew out of some staff, uh, work that had been done about 10 to 15 years ago to create those kind of regional infrastructures. Um, and so we, that, that kind of took its own, took its own life after it left the organization. So much like what we do in the 21st century is very much like what we've done since 1932, right? So that incubation work, that accompaniment work, that transformative work and pulling social movements to the left as far as we could help them go. Um, we did that um, in the 80s when we were, you know, picking up around resistance to mountaintop removal in central Appalachia or other kind of, uh, you know, toxic waste industries, pollution and, you know, different kinds of stuff that grassroots communities were fighting against in the 90s and 80s. A lot of the LGBTQ organizing infrastructure in the Southeast, Highland was by no means the only organization that was a part of that, but was a major player. Two of our previous directors were the founders of Song, Southerners on New Ground. Um, uh, and uh, like I was saying earlier, the Immigrant Refugee Rights Network organizing and a lot of the capacity building for multilingual capacity building in organizations around the South, a lot of that didn't start at Highlander, but had a, had a major incubating space at Highlander. Um, Alternate Roots is a regional arts organization that works nationally. Um, people came together at Highlander and founded that organization 40 plus years ago. Um, and so when I talk about, you know, the 21st century, all the way back to 1932, that's what happens typically. Groups form at Highlander. Some groups are formed by Highlander. And no matter what, we're, we're in relationship with people to accompany them. So Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee of the 1950s and 60s, it was black college youth and others um, who came together uh, to figure out what does it mean to really take a student, for student, black students to take lead um, and have their own space to organize within the black freedom movement. Uh, they came together at Highlander and were supported by Highlander staff, but they, they, they did their own thing and built that network out. Um, and so a lot of the work that Highlander is known for in the 60s uh, in accompaniment uh, of the Black Freedom Movement. That was done in our Knoxville campus uh, after we were forcibly removed from Grundy County. Um, between the 30s and the 50s, you know, like there's a lot of photos out there, like you saw 
the Martin Luther King photo. A lot of people are like, Martin Luther King was trained at Highlander. That's what he did. That's a mythology that we try to dispel very gently. Um, Martin Luther King taught us a lot, taught our staff a lot at the time, and the, and the staff of Highlander at the time taught Dr. King a lot. Um, but he was part of our 25th anniversary in 1957. Uh, he was a guest speaker. We have an annual homecoming and anniversary uh, every September, right around or just after Labor Day. These days, we have to organize it around UT Knoxville football games. So we have to be real careful about not taking up all the hotels, which is really a way of saying they take up all the hotels so we can't have any, you know, homecoming. <laughs> uh, so I say all that because uh, in the 50s, we were, you know, we were at the, we were at a point where we we're becoming a meeting place for, uh, for black and white people to come together um, across the region to, to, to fight back against Jim Crow. Uh, which they, you know, black folk have been doing since the 1600s, right? So it's like when we get into the questions of what Highlander started and what Highlander really initiated, it's 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 a little, it's more it's more appropriate to say that we've created space for folks to come together, um, and then had some real important interventions. I'd say the thing that um, the name that you didn't lift up that I I want to make sure there's always lift up is uh, Septima Clark, um, who's often referred to as the mother of the civil rights movement. Um, in fact, Dr. King called her that. And the reason she was called that uh, was because um, in the 50s, there were, uh, we know that there are the, the voting and literacy tests that were required for black people to vote. Um, and in the Sea Islands of South Carolina, um, Septima and a fellow named Esau Jenkins and uh, one of Septima's relatives, Bernice Robinson, came together and recognized that there needed to be uh, a literacy program that would enable uh, black folks who couldn't read and pass those literacy tests to vote to do that, right? So they developed a literacy program in the Sea Islands of South Carolina that the Highlander became like the home base for um, and incubating force for back in the 50s. Um, and when we talk about like the state's attack and the state's response to our work, um, I make the case often that uh, it was that innovative work that trained up thousands and thousands of black people, particularly in rural communities around the, around the South, uh, to gain some political power um, in a way that they didn't have it in that formal way. So um, prior, to, prior to the 50s, um, we were doing a lot of work in accompaniment with the labor movement. Um, 1930s, we were born out of the Great Depression, and a lot of unemployed people was, were some of the original folks that our staff were in kind of an education and organizing relationship with. Um, and so any, we became the de facto training ground for the CIO. Um, before there was an AFL-CIO, we were the de facto training ground in the South for the CIO. Um, and so there was just a lot of different work. And so when people ask, just to kind of tie this question up, when people ask, like, y'all do labor work, y'all do environmental work, you do race work, you do queer work, you do what, y'all do, y'all just have mission drift, y'all do all this kind of stuff. Um, my gentle retort is typically, now nah, we're a school. So we work with a whole lot of people and we connect a whole lot of people together across front lines and across issues um, because people know what the issues are and people know what they're up against. Right. Um, they, they may not all know each other. <laughs> so how do we connect people together? How do we help them learn together? And that's our central mission and our story. Yeah. Well, and it sounds to me like a, a term that's been popularized over the last 20 or 30 years is that of intersectionality. And it sounds like y'all are very keenly aware of how these matters do. We, we do often work in our own silos, but there, but we are all, I mean, through identity, class, race, sex, gender, these things aren't region. They are intersecting and overlapping in important ways. So I'm glad that you all can, can work with. I'm glad you can work with a diverse and wide group of folks. Uh, I know that's helpful, especially in the South. Um, 
I'm thinking, I'm just, I'm thinking, you know, I, I spent the first 22 years of my life in eastern, rural eastern North Carolina, and um, in the eight more years or so in Virginia, and now the last three and a half, four years in Louisiana. And I would imagine that there are listeners to this podcast who may not be aware that all of these social movements are happening in the mm-hmm. South, even if they live in the South. You know, I'd, I didn't grow up in Eastern North Carolina aware of, of the, the one of the history due to lots of things about the way that was sometimes taught. Um, and also I feel like in Louisiana, what I see is that you have to, you have to seek it out and you have to find it. And it's not, you know, our, our group in the Delta, we don't have a building with a sign in front and we don't have a flag that we, that we wait, you know, we do our work, but it, it would be, there's all of this, there's a great level of sensitivity that comes with that. Um, what do you say, oh, that's a rambling way to ask, what do you say to folks who are, who are learning for the first time that these movements exist, that these organizations exist? Um, what kind of, you've named several groups, what kind of groups do you find yourself working with? So if, for someone not familiar with these types of organizations, how, how could you sum up the groups that you're seeing that exist and work in the South? Who are not, asking for specific names, but what kind of groups are they? Sure. Um, one way I often talk about it is they're folks who are interesting in expanding lowercase d democracy in different, different forms, right? So it's like economic democracy. We know that if our economic system is, is favoring the few over the many, then that's not going to benefit people. We also know that our economic system can't be divorced from our systems of governance. It's not just, you can't just win an election and then expect for people to have more money in their pocket. We actually have to have like a real conversation about how economics work out. So we work with a lot of people who are interested in what it means to rearrange the social and economic and political and cultural order. You know, I mean, if, if there was an original mission statement, um, it was rearrange the social order. <laughs> uh, and, and so much of that had to do with, you know, um, and what, what, that, what that still has to do with, with folks is like, we're working with people who are, um, again, trying to expand both the concept and the practice of lowercase d democratic practice. Um, yeah. So, if it's if it's a membership based organization that's a statewide or or a city or a regional you know there's a whole member there are membership based organizations that we'll work with faith communities and spiritual communities are arguably to a lesser extent in the 21st century membership based organizations but we we work with we work with folks who are coming together from who are driven by their faith to toward those questions of expanding um, not just access but also what it means to really have a, a real genuine claim over their own destiny. Um, we also work with folks who are um, really, I mean, I think today we, you're seeing, people will see us working more consistently with black and brown led organizing. Um, and that's, that's very intentional, but also cash poor and working class white communities, working across the racial and class divides that are often designed to uh, pit people against each other. So we're, it's for us, when, when you talk about an organization, I mean, we, su- we support almost 6,000 people every year. Um, 
and I include in that the people that are on this, listen to this podcast, right? So we're, we're getting information up to thousands and thousands of people a year. We're bringing people to Highlander where we are um, to the tune of, you know, thousands of people a year. But then we're also working more specifically with um, program, you know, programmatically, like our concentrated programs that we're driving, hundreds of people a year. So we place a large emphasis on young people mm-hmm. through our program called the Seeds of Fire program, uh, which is a year-round program designed to be in accompaniment with youth-led organizing and youth-serving organizations throughout the region. So uh, Savannah, Miami, North Carolina, uh, Texas, uh, Louisiana, um, I know specifically New Orleans, um, and other in central Appalachia, more rural folks. Um, we, we will work with those youth organizing organizations by bringing their youth leaders together um, and we support an advisory committee made up of young people from those organizations who design those educational experiences. So um, we're working, because we believe in intergenerational work, um, we, we know that the, the, the generations that are gonna be inheriting the muck, we, we are, are among the most directly impacted by the, the current and future muck, right? So we gotta help, we gotta, like how do we work with them to build their leadership capacity, support their skills, support their relationships, and doing it in a way that actually honors the the agency um, and centers the agency of young people to to make decisions on their own terms, you know. Um, so that's like one example. We work a lot with young people. We work a lot with emerging leaders. Um, I hope I'm answering your question because I think it's yeah. yeah. There are a whole range of org. It's like actually it would be impossible to give you the list of organizations that we're touching. Um, I would say specifically, though, for folks to check out the Southern Movement Assembly, uh, which is an, it's like a regional uh, assembly of organizations, individuals, efforts. Uh, we sit on the governance council of that assembly um, and help. Basically, what that is, is an, it, it's, you can go to southtosouth.org and check out um, what the Southern Movement Assembly is all about. Um, but it's it's a coalition of of sorts of m- almost hundreds of organizations and individuals who are coming together to think through how do we uh, reclaim the South. <laughs> that's yeah. wonderful, and that's that's that that does answer my question. And it, it I was I, you know I'm thinking if you are sitting if you're a person listening to this um, or it's passed along to you and you're in rural Mississippi mm-hmm. or or central Louisiana and you're wondering wow are does that work happen here? You know, does it, I'm thinking of very rural areas where you might not be able to see or, or know if that work exists. And so I, you've answered the question, but it sounds like, I feel like you have your finger on the pulse of social movements across the South. And it sounds to me like good news that there are movements happening in multiple states across the region, that it is there. Totally, totally. It's there now and it's been there for a long time. I think that's the other thing that, we that's another component of our role in social movements in the in the region in particular is to help remind people or as we often say to re-hyphen member people to their own progressive and radical stories of their own communities so i mean where you're at the southern tenant farmers union um in the delta country was a robust cross-racial uh cross-class and very religiously inspired uh, movement with a lot of concern, a lot of flaws and a lot of mistakes and all that kind of stuff. So there's no doubt about that, but which movement isn't yeah. uh, filled with those things. 
but there's a, and that was in the twenties and thirties, you know? So it's like, what does it mean for people to remember? Oh, wow. We had these broad based cross-class cross-racial movements that were part in my own backyard. Cause that was a very specifically rural struggle. Um, Anybody who wants to learn more about that or about any other kind of rural or small town movement can check out a whole range of uh, resources that we have or that uh, people that we're connected to have so that they can be like, wow, you know, I'm not stepping in onto new territory. Right. Exactly. I'm I'm stepping into a stream that and I'm stepping on some shoulders that um, people can carry me. I think the among the bigger goals of white supremacy culture and capitalism are to help uh, create like an, an amnesia effect on those of us who are like more concerned about progressive issues. Um, so one of the ways that we can combat that is by getting reconnected to our histories. Um, and one methodology that we use is, is uh, intergenerational work, you know, connecting with our elders who are part of that. Um, and if we don't have elders who are part of that, there's a library and an archive out there that can tell you the story of your own community and its progressive past. That's wonderful. That is wonderful because it's easy even for communities to to have that amnesia effect um, or for it yeah. to be so commonplace. It's so commonly known that it then it, I've seen this in various Delta communities and other places. It becomes easy to um, I don't want to say not appreciate it because it is appreciated, but it becomes uh, it's just part of the fabric of, the, of their lives. And so for an outsider to look in and say, wow, this was an amazing thing that you all accomplish as a community, um, and that that's, that story should still be told, and that story deserves being celebrated and letting it orient, you know, the, the things that you might want to do today or, or push you in a different trajectory, but it deserves to be built upon and to rem- be remembered and known. Um, it's also nice, just in this conversation, it reminds me, which is, is probably a good thing, it reminds me of why Progressive Southern Theologians was founded to start with, and it is to, I, I spent a number of years uh, in Chicago, Illinois, and I, I would probably also say I spent a number of years running away, in a sense, from my Southern heritage and background, and that's because my, my experience of the South was growing up in a very, very conservative highly racially charged area in eastern north carolina and for me getting away from that was a way to to move towards the liberation of my mind at least from lots of things that i inherited growing up Uh, and to come back to the south i have through connections that i've had across the country i've had to contend with myself and i and i'm sure also with the stereotype that almost like the bible what what good comes out of galilee (laughs) also what good comes out of the south um, and to say, to, to admit, to, to be part of this, and it's helpful for us, uh, those people who are progressive leaders, to not feel as though, and not just leaders, but progressive people doing the work on the ground, to not feel so isolated, because I do think it's very easy to feel isolated doing the kind of work like you're describing and the people that come yep. uh, to work with the Highlander Center and that you all incubate and help as well, that it's very easy to feel like we're on our own and on our little island. And I'm sure that happens in metropolitan areas in the north and in other areas too, but you yep. feel like that here. Um, so I, that just touches on why, why this website started and that we try to raise awareness of the work and the existence of other groups and that we're not alone and that, that, that we are, you know, can be connected if we choose to reach out and make that happen and to find Absolutely. But it's hard, you know, because it's like there's a way that progressive and 
radical or whatever you want to call it communities can become in and of themselves and reinforce their own sort of community boundaries. And that's sometimes a matter of survival. That's the real powerful work, you know, and I think what you're doing uh, with this both podcast and y'all's and y'all's writing is, is a significant way of helping to, to create safe ways for people to bridge in these particular moments. So I appreciate what y'all are doing. We hope so. Um, we thank you. Um, so you've already answered this question. I'll just, just, but just to, to sort of put a pin in it and make sure that people remember this, your work does extend obviously outside of Appalachia. You work with groups across the region of the, the, the entire region of the South, which is multiple regions within itself. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That is, that is correct. Right. So if, if somebody's sitting in South Carolina or in Alabama, they, there are ways to connect and to be, um, engaged is that that's right absolutely I mean it's you know our primary focus is what some people just would say writ large is the south um, you know stretch, stretching from Texas up to to DC Maryland and part of the reason we frame it that way is it's it's uh, former Confederate states um, or it's uh, kind of the core of the black the force forest black diaspora right african diaspora um and by no and so like when we think about like what the south is that's that's how we categorize it but we work we've always had a special relationship with with eastern tennessee and central appalachia that's where we started and that's where we don't have any intention of, of leaving but yeah we people can people can get engaged with us they're not they're more people are connected to us than they realize i think you know, one or two degrees away from someone who's gone through a training, you know, every once in a while, we'll have someone call and say, you know, my grandma was a, it was a child in y'all's children's program back in 1942, <laughs> or something. Um, or, hey, you know, my, my, my minister studied uh, Paulo Freire in, in seminary and uh, read this book, We Make the Road by Walking and blah, 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 you know, which is a, a talked book between Paulo Freire and Miles Horton, one of our founders. So there's there's all these threads and connections that people um, uncover and find out about. And yeah, I was in Thailand last May connecting with popular educators and other folks last year. And my uh, comrade and co-executive director Ashley was in, was in Denmark where uh, the folk school movement was an inspirational folk school movement to, to some of our founders uh, back in the 30s. So we, we maintain international connections too. Wonderful. That's that's incredible. Very good. We're big in Denmark, man. And Denmark's been doing some really interesting videos and stuff like that in the last few years. Uh, people are always calling us from Denmark, like, "Hey, can we do this interview?" And they're like, "Sure, yeah, that's fine." We get yeah. inquiries from Japan. We get it's just wild. It's wild. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, if, if if someone's sitting at home and they are they're moved by what you all are doing, you all clearly support a lot of a lot of people, a lot of organizations, a lot of movements, but are there ways that listeners could support the work that you all do? Yeah, we love it when people get connected to us and learn more information about us. So obviously the website um, is one place just to get some basic overview. Um, we have a really active Facebook page, Instagram page, uh, Twitter's not as active, but getting more active. Um, so you can go to our Facebook and Instagram pages in particular. Um, we have a newsletter. If you go to our website and scroll all the way down to the bottom, you can sign up to get uh, a, 
an, an electronic newsletter that we call a view from the hill. Um, it, we call it that because we literally are positioned on a hill that overlooks the, the Great Smoky National Park. It's a pretty beautiful view. Um, and we call it the People's Hill as opposed to the other hill that we know about. Um, so we're, um, that, that electronic newsletter comes out uh, monthly, sometimes a little bit more frequently, sometimes less frequently, but it's not an overwhelming electronic news blast. So feel free to uh, sign up for that. Um, and then more specifically, you know, I think we have an annual homecoming every September. And it's for folks who have been part of programming. And it's also for folks who've never been part of programming to come back to Highlander and get connected to people. Um, I have had some people describe their homecoming experience to me. And these ain't even Christian folks um, who said, I literally just experienced the kingdom of God <laughs> by just overlooking the 200 to 300 to 500 people uh, of, from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, uh, working together, singing together, eating together, uh, learning together um, on an annual basis. So folks are welcome to come to that. Uh, obviously, this year we're 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 in a bit of a, a holding pattern around what that might look like. We have you know, crossing our fingers and lots of hope so we can still be, bring people together physically. But no matter what, we're going to work to bring people together uh, electronically. Um, so there's all kinds of ways to get in where you fit in with Highlander. Well, that sounds like a pilgrimage worth making. So, if um... totally, it's a super fun time. It was, in fact, when I talk about my Highlander story, it was the 75th anniversary. It was my first visit to Highlander. Thousands of people were there from all, literally, all over the world, uh, doing exactly what we do every homecoming, except a lot fewer people. <laughs> um, and uh, it was a transformative experience, um, and it, it set me on a journey of where I'm at today. So, yeah. Well, Alan, thank you again for joining us. Um, folks, if you are interested in learning more, remember that that website is highlandercenter.org. Please go check it out and, and find ways to engage and support the work, this wonderful work that's going on right now. There's also, uh, Alan, I want to plug on our way out that PST did an interview, uh, a print script interview with the leaders of Song, Southerners on New Ground, and that is available on the website. And Alan, Great interview. Please go back and, and take a look at that as well if you want to see another example uh, of in, in another degree of how things are connected here uh, with the Highlander Center. So, Reverend yeah. Alan, thank you for your time today. I greatly appreciate it. Blessings on you all as you all continue to, to fight the fight to do the work that you all are doing. Yeah, thank you, Mark, and um, many blessings back your way, and hope you can stay in touch. Friends, we hope you enjoyed the interview with Reverend Alan Maxfield Steele of the Highlander Research and Education Center. And remember that you can check out more of their work at highlandercenter.org. Jamie, it's now time for our front porch musings or a time when you and I share something that has touched our hearts or that we've found interesting that may not be national headline news. So imagine this is a warm spring evening. It's not been warm recently, but imagine it is. The Lord is risen. Holy week is over. You're ready to get out to your front porch and to rest a bit, and you've got some musing to do. So, Jamie, what's uh, what's been on your mind this week? Over the last uh, the last few weeks, I've had more of an opportunity to actually just read. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, part of that is just a function of being being at the house more, uh, but, but part of that is is uh, an earnest desire. If, and myself to to sort of think through those pieces that we've been talking about in terms of uh, of rebuilding society and 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 creating a more fair 
playing field, a more even playing field for folks. And, and so I've been reading a lot of economics the last few weeks, which is not at all my my area. <laughs> I should make that crystal clear uh, before I go into this. Uh, right, but I've been reading uh, uh, Pinkety's book, Capital, and then I've been reading Liz Warren's book, This Fight is Our Fight. Hmm. But the, the one that's been most important to me is by uh, a guy named Rutger Bregman. Okay. He's a journalist. I think he is maybe d- Dutch. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's an educated historian. He was going to go into academia, but decided to go into journalism instead. But I saw an interview with him on one of the morning shows a couple weeks ago. And I picked up one of his books called Utopia for Realists. And it is fabulous. And I would, I cannot recommend it heartily enough to 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 both listeners of the show and just in general he uh, he's a very entertaining writer and so it makes it an easy read but but he takes sort of ideas that we think of as being completely unworkable or pie in the sky and and with hard data shows how they actually work within a larger within a larger context right so the one that was most uh, meaningful to me was uh was the the concept of universal basic income. Um, okay. If you followed the campaign of Andrew Yang, uh, that was his big idea uh, was that um, uh, all Americans should get, I think it was a thousand dollars a month. And I think he called it a freedom dividend or something like that. And so that, but Bregman takes up this idea of, of universal basic income and, and shows how there was a, the, the, the example that he gave that sticks with me the most was there was a, a section of London that was being plagued by this handful of homeless guys. And they, they weren't mean spirited and they weren't sort of nefarious, but they, they, they were homeless and they more often than not sort of had trouble living within the bounds of, of, proper British life for lack of a better word. Uh, and <laughs> for these 13 guys who kept on ending up in various petty courts, the, the area of London that they lived in or stayed in uh, was spending $625,000 a year in legal bills <laughs> to, oh to, just to, to keep these guys sort of moving in and out of the prison system. And, and I guess somebody had an idea um, to give each one of them, let me look over. I, I want to say, yeah, here it is. Um, 3000 pounds in spending money or what? $5,000 or something like that. Um, anyways, with no strings attached whatsoever and just see what happened. <laughs> and uh-huh. within a year, like half of them are off the street. All, none of them were causing an issue anymore with, with living sort of within the bounds of, of the law. And, and it was a problem that had been solved with what, 30, 39,000 or 39,000 pounds, whatever that is in, in dollars. Sure. Um, sure. Instead of 650,000 pounds uh, <laughs> in legal fees every year. And, wow. and so he, what he does is he sort of tracks all these different utopian-esque communities that have tried to do that on a large scale level 
Uh, and so there was a Canadian experiment that happened a few years ago. There was one in Scotland that happened. Uh, anyways, but so he takes these ideas and really just brings in like statistical analysis and hard data to show how how feasible they actually are if you get over sort of the shock value of them. Uh, and so I've been enjoying this book immensely and it's giving me a lot of the tools I need to, when we do come out of this thing, to go back and, and sort of try to usher in some of these conversations at a larger level, sort of from my, from my pulpit and from, from whatever sort of authority I possess as a, as a mainline pastor in, in the United States, which I think that in a buck 45 will get you a cup of coffee, but, <laughs> uh, but I still, I, I feel much more prepared to, to sort of engage in those conversations and feel like I know something of what I'm talking about now. So that's been, it's been a fun read. Cause like I said, he's a really good writer and it's a short book. It's a, you'd like it. It's a really short book. It's maybe 200 pages long, but so it's it, it, anybody who's listening, it is well worth your, your time and your effort to uh, to pick it up and 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 thumb through it because he is a he's a very very interesting writer with a lot of very interesting ideas. And that is Utopian for Realists, is that right? Utopia for Realists by Utopia. Rutger Bregman. Okay, Utopia for Realists. I would love that if anybody, anytime someone says there's a book about economics that's fun to read and well written, that gets my attention right away. <laughs> the Pinkety book is 800 pages long and not that fun to read. But this one is. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll check that out. I'll look for that on Amazon. That's cool. Uh, Jamie, this week I am thinking about, I'm using about uh, sourdough bread. Uh, this, there, this is no national headline news at all or, or anywhere near that. This is just a, a, a personal story. Um, I, I have uh, made a batch of, of sourdough bread this week. And there's a story behind it. Um, one, I, I made it as uh, I started making it pa this past weekend, and it takes. Um, it's based on a starter that is used, and you feed it for three or four days. It's a liquid, and you feed it for several days, and then after three or four days, it's ready to make into a dough. And then you can. You know, it takes another 24 hours or so to let it all let it rise as as much as as I would like to let it rise, and then bake it and whatnot. And it's it's, it's delicious. It's food for my soul and the story behind that is is it goes back it's a recipe my mom has always made and she would only make it at christmas time usually she would only make it at christmas and so it was a very because it's a several day process and she was trying to raise you know children during that time and um this is sort of a big to do to see it from start to finish and but it just it was just one of these sweet memories that I have of Christmas and especially of those days when when it was when it was rising, when the dough was rising and when it was being baked. And it's just it smells so good. It will fill the house. Um, but recently, uh, the, the other part of that story is that um, I don't know, it was a few months ago. My mom called one day and she said that um, my dad had accidentally thrown away the starter. Oh no. Oh yeah. Oh, and what Oh no. Yeah, and these starters are not easy to to make or to, or to have and you usually have to get it from somebody else who has them or who has some. And my mom and dad have this arrangement where my dad is um he is one of a certain generation of of males in the south who did not necessarily learn to cook and my mom is one who you know, embrace that 
identity or that role and and she also loves to cook that's something that gives her a lot of joy um so they've had that arrangement but so my dad uh especially once the kids are out of the house my dad's role that he has graciously taken on as well is that he he cleans my mom cooks my dad cleans and they they keep things they keep the kitchen rolling that way and it just so happened i believe my mom had the starter out on the kitchen you know out on a shelf and out on a um, she had it out in the kitchen and my dad grabbed it and was, he was in the middle of washing dishes while my mom was cooking. He kind of keeps things caught up for her. Um, as she cooks, he, he's washing and he poured out because it just looked like old chicken broth basically is what the starter looks like. And he poured it out in the sink and my mom just, well, that's the whole thing. Like they, they, um, I, I believe my mom said, Ricky, I need you to, to walk out of the kitchen now because there's nothing that I can say that will be remotely. <laughs> I will have to apologize. This was a starter, Jamie, that my mom had had for probably 25 to 30 years. Oh, that no. someone, someone from her home church, from the church I grew up in, uh, an, an elderly person, I believe has passed away, if I'm thinking of the right person. They've, uh, they've passed, long since passed away. And when you, when you make starter and you make it for the dough, it, it ends up being with enough for you to keep some after you, you use some in the mix and then you keep some um, afterwards to, to start feeding again, whenever you want to make more bread. And so now all that starter was just gone. And she had been using that same strand for over, over 25 years. And, um, and my mom had, had since calmed down about everything and, and was not as upset anymore. But it's, she was telling me this story and they were able to, to laugh about it a little bit. And she goes, well, I guess I'm just going to have to start, you know, with a brand new starter. And what I had forgotten until this moment in my, and what my mom had forgotten is that she had actually given me some of that starter years ago. Oh, wow. No kidding. And that's what I used to make the bread this week. But it, it stays good in your, if you keep it in your refrigerator, it stays good forever, basically, as long as it's refrigerated. And it dawned on me a little bit later. I said, you know what? I actually still have some of that in my, it had been probably a year since I'd made any of the bread. Um, so it was just, it was, it was just so sweet. And it was nice just to, for both of us to, for it to dawn on us to remember that that starter was still alive. It didn't end with my dad's mistake of throwing <laughs> it down the drain. And, uh, and so I was able to call my mom a day or two ago and tell her that, you know, I'd made the bread and that the starter is still alive and well for going on, you know, at least 30 years or so. And, um, and, and we'll be able to hopefully get some back to her in the future so that she can have that to make again and uh, can keep sharing it with other people. But uh, one of those family things and, and, and just heartwarming, soul warming thing in the midst of COVID-19 to be able to make that bread and let my mind drift back over all those years as a kid when she would make it every Christmas and it was good. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, that's wonderful, Mark. I love that story. That brings me joy to my heart. <laughs> good. well all right good sir um that's going to wrap us up for today thank you for your time jamie as always mark i appreciate it yep and if you're listening along uh, thank you for joining us remember you can find all of our work on facebook twitter and at progressive southern theologians.com and remember for you apple users you can now find us on apple Podcasts as well friends y'all take care jamie you take care and we'll be back with you next week